When you are working on a program, a lot of things are going through your head. In some sense, you become part machine when you are programming. Learnable programming is a concept that facilitates this by showing developers what the computer is doing in real time before compiling. In this episode, Josh Vardy, the co-founder of Code Connect Inc., talks to Edena Salinas about incorporating concepts from learnable programming into Visual Studio and C Sharp by showing developers what the computer is thinking while the developer is typing. Code Connect lets a developer immediately see what value a variable is taking and provide test values to troubleshoot a portion of code to understand how different code paths are going to work. This is in contrast to having to compile and run the full program to see what's going to happen. If you've ever thought about making developer tools for an IDE or a programming language, this episode provides some great information. Code Connect is a great product and it was acquired by Microsoft. I hope you enjoy this episode. Josh Vardy is co-founder of Code Connect Inc., a company that builds tools to make software developers more productive and that recently got acquired by Microsoft. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks, good to be here. So Alan Perlis, recipient of the Turing Award mm -hmm. for his work on compilers and advanced programming, said something that illustrates the state of software developing, which is to understand a program, you must become both the machine and the program. What does this mean? Um, well, I guess to me, it means more than sort of um, just understanding the source code and sort of the structure of things, but understanding exactly what the computer is going to do. Um, when you look at like what programmers do when they sit at their computers, they don't spend a lot of time sort of, you know, writing out code. They spend most of their time sort of uh, thinking and typically reading code to try and understand it. And I think when you sort of break down uh, what's going on is a lot of people are sort of simulating what the computer is going to do at each line and trying to understand um, exactly, you know, whether or not that's right or wrong, what they need to change to influence that and sort of they're sort of like playing computer in their head as they read the code. Pair programming alleviates a little bit of that. Yeah, but, it, yeah. it does and it helps you you know, it turns out that people don't make good substitutes for computers. Uh, when we read our code, we make mistakes all the time. We misinterpret or misunderstand what's going on. And paired pro programming can actually be sort of a good defense against that. Because when you when you clarify your thoughts to another person, um, oftentimes they'll correct you or they'll double check you. And it's sort of like another filter um, when, when you're working with code. And to expand this a bit more, Brett Victor, former human interface inventor at Apple, wrote wrote about the concept of learnable programming. Yes. What is learnable programming? Um, so uh, he's probably a better person to ask than me, but... Um, In your own yeah, words? Yeah, that at Code Connect, we spend a lot of time looking at Brett Victor's work because he's done a lot of work um, with sort of like human-computer interaction and sort of he has a far-off vision for, for how not just programmers should interact with their code, but how creators should interact with um, computers. Um, and in his article about learnable programming, he sort of talks about um, a few of the fundamental uh, things that are required for an environment to sort of allow a person to learn what, it, what the code is doing and sort of experiment quickly. One of those things um, is instant feedback. So being able to see what your changes do the moment uh, you make them so you can experiment quickly, iterate quickly, sort of um, experiment at the, the speed of thought, I think is how he puts it. Um, another thing is allowing the computer to sort of um, 
you know, do the things that the computer is good at. So run the code, show you what the code is doing, um, and allow your your mind to sort of uh, work on the creative aspects of software development. And he co- he goes through sort of a number of uh, compelling examples where he goes through for loops and he's drawing shapes and you instantly see you can you can hover over the shape and see which line of code drew it. And he has these really compelling examples um, which sort of show this back and forth style of development where where the creators working not just with the code, but with what their actual output goal is, you know, what they want to create. Um, and he's done a lot of fantastic research in that area. One of the examples that I liked is that, well, he comes from a human interface background, right? So he's saying, if you're interacting interacting with a user interface, you're not expected to be looking at documentation or manuals. So his argument translates to why do we expect developers to be constantly checking documentation and yeah exactly and I think a lot of um, programming environments you know a lot of people still use things like uh, Vim or Emacs even today or very very basic text editors and you find yourself sort of going back and forth as you get you get to a line of code as you're sort of playing computer and you don't understand what it what this method uh, does so you fire up Chrome um, you go and you look up the documentation you try your best to understand it of course you're missing context so you can't understand it perfectly and then you come back and is this really just jointed workflow. Um, it doesn't feel like something like drawing or, you know, sculpting, something where, you, you know, you, you really create very directly. It feels like there's sort of some layers of resistance when you're, when you're trying to do your work that way. And we'll talk about that in, in a minute. And so as part of learnable programming, um, one piece of it comes from the environment, which yeah. is the software development tool. And like you mentioned earlier, some people use Emacs, yeah other people, Visual Studio, and actually me in the early 2000s, I remember I was trying to learn HTML, and then I was talking to a friend, like looking up editors, and I was like, well, what editor do you use? I'm looking at all these nice ones, and some of them are paid, and he was like, oh, I just use Notepad. Yeah, exactly. That was a shock to me. I was like, but no, that's it, like, and he's like, it depends on styles. Yeah, yeah, it really does. Um, A lot of people have strong opinions on those sorts of things. So... uh, how would you define a software development tool? Like, what do you expect from it? So for me, I want to get as close to uh, sort of some of these goals that Brett Victor um, put forward as possible. Um, I don't want to have to go hunting for documentation. Um, I want to see what the impacts of my code changes are very quickly, whether that means like running tests or seeing um, what the output actually is. Uh, for me, a lot of the times, like, so I use Visual Studio for most of my development, um, and I spend a lot of time in what's ca- called their edit and continue um, mode. So you sort of put a breakpoint, uh, you run your program, and you stop the program there, and it sort of stops everything. And then you can edit code, and you can reset where you want the program to execute and continue again. And it's sort of this quick back and forth, um, instantly see what your uh, doing um, style. And that's something that really speaks to me, is being able to as best I can, let the computer show me what it's going to do instead of um, trying to understand exactly what it's going to do. We're having to compile and then run. Yeah, yeah, and uh, there's, you know, Brett Victor's um, arguments and and ideas for as beautiful as they are, sometimes they don't, they don't, um, you know, tackle some of these problems, like the fact that when you compile, like, three and a half million lines of C++, it's going to take some time, like, there's there's really no way to get around that. and, and working around those limitations as best we can, at least. 
or at least this can apply to other types of environments yeah. and some languages in particular. Yeah, exactly. Some languages lend themselves uh, m more more easily to that style development. I know a lot of people in dynamic languages like to use like REPLs so they can execute um, one line of code at a time, see what it does. Uh, once they verified everything's right, they, they continue on that sort of thing. What types of languages would you extrapolate that they probably don't like work very well yeah yeah so c plus plus and c are one that ones that i'm sort of familiar with as they don't currently lend themselves to uh being quick to develop with and quick to compile um and that's sort of both to do with legacy like as far as I understand it, when you compile a C++ program and you're compiling down to assembly and you want to have your, your jumps and your, your, your branches and stuff like that, if you add lines of code in certain places, well, it, it affects the addresses all throughout that compiled program. So you can't quickly do some of this stuff. Um, that might change in the future, you know, with changes or updates to sort of the C++ spec. But for now, those two languages stick out to me as like the most popular languages that... I would have a hard time um, building a product for to sort of make that that um, feedback loop as tight as possible. So at a higher level, what we've been talking about from the concepts of Red Victor is basically showing the developer as the developer is working some feedback from the computer. Yeah. For example, like you mentioned, the shapes. If, yeah. if there's a function, called draw that takes they usually take like five parameters yeah, exactly like coordinates and stuff just to show while they're typing give them some guidance yeah yeah definitely because you know say you you stumble upon that draw code and it takes five parameters like you said well what do all those parameters do um it's kind of nice if you could just tweak them and see okay what does my circle look like at the end um how does how does changing things change the output of my program and having that direct connection is is something I, I like really like a lot. So so a more visual intelligence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's, all, however, I would say that there's a tendency for a lot of people in sort of like live programming research to put together these demos where they where they very they connect um, pieces of code that draw 2D shapes to the output very well because it's very easy to see what line of code does what. Um, it gets a little more complicated when you start to look at like, um, you know. A compiler and how does each line of code map to that com that piece of code's output? It's not as clean of a relationship. Or even if you're changing, like building something like Visual Studio itself, how does each line of code change the output? Sometimes you don't get these beautiful visualizations that uh, live programming tries to sell us. It's just a simple example to illustrate live programming. Yeah, which is absolutely. The name of this concept that we've been talking about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So w one of the things we talked about is that. We expect programmers to write code that manipulates variables without ever seeing the values of those yes. variables, which sounds kind of crazy. Yeah. When I was reading about this, I was like, that is exactly <laughs> what it is. You are you don't have the data yet. No, you don't. You just have to imagine it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So one of the things Brett Victor said is try to show the data. Yes. So uh, 
what is some of the data that you have found would be beneficial to show to the developer? Yeah, so so the hardest part about you know getting a, an environment up that allows people to do live programming on sort of any application, no matter what they're doing, is creating the state. Uh, you have to create the parameters that flow into this this method. If this method is like referencing some global variables, well, those have to be set up properly. Otherwise, things just don't work. So the way we sort of um, at least at Code Connect, when we built uh, our live extension for Visual Studio, uh, the way we went about it was we integrated with unit tests um, because we found that unit tests, in in most code bases, were were fairly far reaching and would do the hard work of setting up state for us. So we wouldn't have to fake it or guess it or approximate it. We would just l run the unit test and we would be able to show the the developer exactly what variables were flowing through, um, flowing through their code. So is the state only the parameters from a method or it's the parameters it's more than that it's like you know you might be working on a method that exists within a class well that class has fields and properties and all these sorts of things and maybe those things were set in a constructor well how do you create that object and then you start to see oh well it has three constructors which one should I call in this case and it, it starts to become a very sort of like intractable like unsolvable problem I think it, it's very hard to um, and, and we've racked our heads a lot about this, about how do you recreate state um, bit for bit. And then you've got the additional concern that if you get the state wrong, uh, best case scenario, you're misleading your user. Worst case scenario is you might do damage because uh, if you change the way the file.delete string is running and it should be like C slash my directory and instead you did just C or something like that. Yeah. Like you don't want to you don't want to mess up state in those kind of situations because it can get kind of dangerous. So just to try to imagine this, in what ways can data be shown in the development process? Is it uh, pop-ups or I've seen things where you have for example, for building iOS apps, you have the code, and then on the next side, you actually see the UI. Yeah, exactly. Is so, that what it is? Uh, so there's a few different ways to look at it. Uh, the tool we built for Alive currently, um, it shows you the values of all your variables um, as they exist. Uh, so if you've got, like, you know, in C Sharp, it's var x equals 5. Well, rated right within the editor, if we're running a live on, on a given method, we show the value x, or we show the variable x has a value of 5. The moment you change your code, everything is updated. And we do that by continuously sort of running your source code. Um, like you said, there are different approaches that people might want to take. Like, um, while we show just the the two string, the string values of all the variables. Um, for something like a time series of stock prices, it might be nice to instead, you know, visualize that as a chart. And then when they change, they see how the chart changes. So it's something that we haven't solved completely. And we see like there's a lot of compelling cases for more powerful visualizations. Um, but they sometimes have to be fine-tuned to the domain that you're trying to solve problems and whether that be like finance for stock or, you know, more artistic things for drawing. So you mentioned Alive, which is the tool that was that you you built it, right? That's correct. Yeah. So me and my co-founder Amadeus, um, we built it. We sort of started it in the February of 2015, um, and we recently sort of it was purchased by Microsoft, and we we joined here uh, at the end of August uh, 2016. Now. So you built it in one year, the tool. That's right. Yeah. We, we had a lot of help, like it, it was a challenging product, but um, we were sort of lucky in the sense that uh, this, this 
other project came out of Microsoft as they sort of continued open sourcing things uh, called the Roslyn compiler. And the Roslyn compiler lets us do a lot of analysis and figure out a lot of information about uh, what's going on in the source code that, uh, you know, we, we probably couldn't have written our own compiler by ourselves yes. in that time. <laughs> so, uh, so I remember reading about this because when you were describing the project and there's also, a, just to clarify, Alive is a Visual Studio extension. That's correct, correct? yeah. There's another one called uh, ReSharper, right? Yes, that's a very popular. It's very popular. It's more of IntelliSense. Yes, exactly. It's doing um, what you would call like static analysis. So it, it'll autocomplete, and like you said, it'll do IntelliSense, like those sorts of things. And that one has been around for several years. And one thing that yes. you point out is they build their own compiler. Yeah. And they they even add the bugs that the yeah. compiler has. They like, uh, they spent a lot of money to attract a lot of very talented engineers for that project. Uh, yeah. Some of the the most knowledgeable people about C-sharp work at either typically Microsoft on the C-sharp compiler or at ReSharper on, on building their, their extension, yeah. So I want to talk about Visual Studio and IDE. Um, why do we need extensions for an IDE? Do you know how this... Yeah, so, so if you look at other... IDEs or environments like Eclipse or Emacs or something, um, it seems like as programmers, like they're never good enough. Uh, we always want to change them in some way to suit maybe like our style of learning or our our style of uh, writing code or you know reading code. But the point is, we we seem to be constantly unhappy with the tools we're given. And I think you see that clearly like in the JavaScript world where people re rewrite all kinds of new tools all the time. Um, and I think when you create an environment like Visual Studio or Visual Studio Code, which they just released, um, you, you really have to allow your users to do some of that investigation themselves. They can't just be giving you feature requests and have you build everything and figure everything out. Um, you have to give them some power to add support for new languages or change the way they interact with source code. Um, and extensions are sort of a powerful way uh, of doing that. To avoid having a... One tool fits everyone. Yeah. Type of thing. Yeah, you'll find that if you try and build a one tool that fits any everyone, like nobody will use your tool. <laughs> one tool that fits nobody. <laughs> it seems to seems to turn out that way. People would be overwhelmed because you would have choices that you're not even using. Like, yeah. Yeah, people would be overwhelmed, and the creators themselves could never come up. They would never have the time to to build all these different things because, uh, well, you know, Microsoft might not have a vested interest in building support for Go, for example. Maybe me, I love Visual Studio, and I want to build Go support into it, so I could go out and do that. And the moment that I, I'm sort of held back from that, I just say, well, I'm going to use a different editor that allows me to do these things. So can you explain in a little bit more detail what the Live Visual Studio extension is? It's clearly very different than uh, ReSharper. Yeah. So, so so when I said that they did static analysis, I guess what you would sort of consider Alive is doing is like dynamic analysis. Um, we don't just look at the source code and, and see what's going on. I, we've kind of hinted at, at it so far. But what we actually do is... We take their source code, um, we rewrite it actually behind the scenes, um, and then we run that rewritten version. And when we run that rewritten version of their code, it's logging the variables at each state to explain, so we can explain sort of what's going on. And then we can take those variables that we've logged and we can put them right back on, on the canvas. And then naturally there's a lot of tricks around how do you do that performantly, um, 
and and that sort of thing because we we want this tool to work for anyone no matter what what kind of project they're working on and some of the c-sharp projects can get really big when you started building this tool and testing it with what sort of project was one of the first ones that you tested it with? So the first things we ever tested with were just new console apps with nothing. Hello like, world. Yeah, it's like, it's hello world. It's like, can you log variables? And then you're like, okay, well, I can log that the variable X had this value. And then you start to get more complex. You say, what happens with a for loop? Like, what should we do with a for loop? Because this value of X had different values at different times. Um, and, and the way we solved that was, when we hit a for loop, there's sort of a little slider that comes up and you can sort of scrub backwards oh, yeah. and forwards through time. Yeah, to very see, intuitive. Yeah, to see exactly what's going on in your source code. Um, but the point is we started out small and then you you just, you you build it as much as you can and then you give it to people and they give you crazy code that breaks it and then you you fix it and uh, you, you become better at, at learning C Sharp, I guess that way too. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that I saw you mention that you... You and um, was your Amadeus, yeah. Amadeus were building this, and then you go to test it with other people's code, and that's when uh, a shock you came in. N not in a shock, but you were like. Yeah, it is. It's like it's you. You sort of, uh, you know, when you're building these things, sometimes you you know the rough spots, and you know where it's not going to work well. So when you have a customer or someone that's paying you money, um, you you become very motivated to make it work for their situation. So. As, as we grew, we sort of had this 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 golden vision of like we would know a live was performant enough when it could run the rosin compiler itself and and run code there, for example, because the rosin compiler is you know hundreds of projects. It's three and a half million lines of code. It takes you know on the order of maybe ten minutes to compile something like that. And you obviously, as you're typing, you don't want to wait ten minutes between every time you change a, a character and the results coming up. So you start to uh, work on performance things there, ways to make comp compilation faster and stuff. Let's talk a little bit about Roslyn. What kind of functionality does it provide? Yeah, so for those who don't know what Roslyn is, um, originally the C-sharp uh, uh, compiler was written in C++ because C-sharp as a language didn't exist when they invented it. So um, after a while, uh, the C++ code base got you know, hard to deal with. It felt kind of unnatural that you were writing the compiler in a different language um, because when you dog food the thing you've, you're building, uh, you really start to feel the pain points of, of the language and you start to see where there's performance issues and that sort of stuff. So at some point they decided they were going to, re I think in like 2008, they decided they were going to rewrite the compilers. But not only were they going to rewrite them, but they were going to give sort of um, extension points and entry points at every stage of the part of the compilation pipeline. So, uh, you know, you typically when you compile a program, you you uh, lex it, which is just sort of taking all the characters and breaking them into tokens. You parse those tokens to understand the syntax, and then you sort of map to these sort of uh, I guess they call it like a semantic model, like the meaning behind the tokens. Um, what does console.write line actually mean where does that point what should be run and then you finally do this emit stage where you put out the the bytes or the il at the very end and at every point in that pipeline they've allowed you to instrument and see what's going on here and potentially rewrite things if you want analyze source code um you know some people use Roslyn, for example to to write uh pieces of software that analyze source code for bugs and say, oh, you know, you shouldn't be programming like this because this variable might be null. Or, you know, you shouldn't be taking this string and making a call to 
a SQL database because you might get SQL injection or something, so a security sort of analyzer. And Roslyn allows you to interact with the compiler in a very easy way that that I would say probably isn't available in most other languages, yeah. Does that make it seem like an interpreter, the fact that you can plug in? Is that how it works? Well, you can, you can use it as, uh, you, you, it has like, Rosin, there's sort of this problem because Rosin has become like this catch-all term for a million different little projects that do all these different things. Like it powers IntelliSense in Visual yeah. Studio and it powers keyword highlighting. And they technically have something similar to a, an interpreter, like a, a script runner where you can run individual lines of code. It will compile them and, and run them. Um, so it, it's it's kind of, I, every year it gets broader in, in its scope. But it's essentially a set of tools that allow you to work with the C-sharp and VB languages and interact and understand them. Yeah. yeah. Is the way to interact with them only through a Visual Studio extension? No, uh, plenty of people um, just, you sort of, you, you can, they're, they're available on NuGet, so you can add them as a reference to like a vanilla C-sharp project or something like that, a little console app. Then you can use Roslyn to say, read a string, parse the string, look at what's going on here, and then maybe output some useful values or something like that. So for those people that don't know what NuGet is, can you just yeah? So in in the dot net, sorry, in the dot net uh, land, um, C sharp, C sharp's package manager is called NuGet, and it's where sort of all our dependencies, which are called uh, DLLs, are located. And um, they just put uh, Rosin up there as a dependency that you can use, and you can consume it as a library, and you can use it to say parse this text, uh, emit this this C sharp program to disk. Uh, look for all the methods in this program, that sort of stuff. So whatever you, whatever you want to do with, with C-sharp text and, and programs. And the Visual Studio extension is what we talked about. It adds functionality, yeah. catering different so styles. We take, yeah, so we basically take those same ideas where we would be interpreting source code and we build them right into Visual Studio. And we say, okay, instead of interpreting arbitrary strings, we're going to interpret whatever's loaded in the editor, for example. And that will be the programs that we're, we're analyzing. So we work uh, just sort of side by side with Visual Studio. And when, when you're calling functionality from Rosling, does it put the, like you said, it can take 10 minutes or something. Does it put it the process on hold while while it's going line by line? Or? Um, it depends what you're doing. Like uh, you can write something that that is very slow and and needs to do like for every single token. See, you know, do some analysis on this or something like that. And you could write slow programs that way. That would take a long time. Um, and a big part of a live sort of has been getting around these performance things, not slowing down typing. Because while Alive is useful, you don't want to like get in the way of your users. Um, and and Roslyn kind of has this side benefit of uh, it's already running in Visual Studio. Like we said, it's what powers IntelliSense and keyword highlighting and stuff. So what we can actually do is we get to share like those compilation objects because it's compiling your code in the background, figuring out how things are related. And our extension can actually just share that, uh, that stuff. So unlike ReSharper, who has to reparse everything from scratch, build up their own model of your code, uh, we actually get to share Roslyn's uh, model right within Visual Studio, which uh, helps a lot with performance. Because it's already running. That's right. Yeah, you have a, you have an instance of Roslyn running within Visual Studio, doing all those things, and uh, any extension can share that information. And if you, 
had written your own compiler, it would have affected. Yeah, I would have a PhD or something like that. <laughs> like it would have been a lot of uh, it would have been a lot of work. Uh, a fully functioning compiler that, like you said, matches bug for bug with with C sharp. It would take. Uh, well, it took it took a team of very talented people, like from 2008 to 2014 ish. So. Do you think that would have affected performance in if we built it that way? Yeah, like Alive is a tool, yeah. the, the same tool, but you yeah. don't have access to Roslyn. Yeah, like if we if we had if we had no access to Roslyn, we couldn't have built it. Like bottom line, um, we we don't have the knowledge of C Sharp or the dedicated. Like I no, said, no, I mean if, if it was built, yeah. let let's say you you build the compiler. Okay, would it have been less performant in? Yeah, it would have been less performant because we for a couple of reasons. Number one. If we had built this compiler, it probably wouldn't be as good as the Rosin one. But number two, um, like I said, Rosin is already running in Visual Studio, and we get to share that. Uh, so if we'd written our own, we would still have to parse every file, which means Visual Studio would have parsed it once, and then we would have parsed it at none. And then if you're running ReSharper, you would have had a third a third parse, and you know. Yeah, exactly. You do a lot of the same things over and over, and these things aren't aren't cheap to do in the first place. So, so, and one of the things that changed with Brosling is, like you mentioned, it was open source. Yeah. But normally, compilers have been just black boxes. Yeah. So, so they're black boxes. It's kind of interesting, actually, because historically, compilers at least in the last decade or so, have been open source. Um, C Sharp and, and VB sort of um, were one of the first projects within Microsoft to, to, be, to be open sourced. But all those open source compilers were, like you said, black boxes. You put source code in and you got either assembly out or if you were doing Java, you got like uh, bytecode out or something like that. But you couldn't influence what was going on. You couldn't do any analysis what was going on inside of the compiler. Um, there's little efforts here and there, like a C++ has a Clang and LLVM and these projects which give you some in insight into um, semantic information about programs. But Roslyn is, anyone who's used both, I think would say that Roslyn is like sort of, you know, a, a, in a league of its own when it comes to this sort of analysis stuff. Why do you think it's important that to expose APIs from compilers. Uh, yeah, so I think this kind of feeds back into what we were saying about extensions in Visual Studio. Um, a lot of people want to do a lot of different things, and and the the C sharp compiler people can't you know implement all these ideas or uh, build all these cool tools. Um, so by exposing these interfaces and exposing these extensibility points, they allow the community to build these tools. Like for example, um, you know, Alive aside, uh, we built some other tools that, that explored code that used Roslyn. Um, some people, there, there's an extension called OzCode, which extends Visual Studio's debugger, and it's using Roslyn. Um, I just met someone today, actually, uh, who works for a computer that does, or for a company that does static analysis. So they analyze code for bugs, and they use Roslyn. Um, and and just the fact that it's so easy to use and, and sort of extensible and complete uh, means that a lot of people have been able to leverage it to build like cool stuff. And wh what were some of the most complex aspects when building a life that that you remember like yeah the, i i know i it, whenever someone asks me that question i know exactly what the wow. what the single one most complex thing the single most complex thing for us was like state is is one managing state 
it's not technically complex, but but I'd say the most technically complex part is uh, running performantly. So being able to be super fast. And the way we do that is actually, uh, you know, I mentioned this edit and continue uh, functionality that's built into Visual Studio. You put a breakpoint, you can edit the code and continue on. We actually leverage that same uh, functionality in a live. So once we've compiled your code once, instead of recompiling everything or even the same project that you're in. When you're editing a method, we only recompile that individual method. And then we can just take the IL from that method, we can pass it to um, C Sharp's uh, VM, which is called the CLR. And the CLR understands how to take these uh, these differences and, and change the original method. And then we can run your source code. And that takes us down from like, you know, taking on the order of maybe five to 10 seconds down to sort of sub-second compile times um, after an initial com compilation, which is really important because this sort of feeds back into what we were saying about Brett Victor is that we really want instant feedback. It needs to be as fast as possible. And it's easy to, to make sacrifices and say that you know, three seconds is good enough, but I, I believe studies show that like sort of once you get over this one second thing, especially once you get over five seconds, people often will go do something else. They'll change to another tab, uh, they'll go on Reddit or something like that, waste time. So if you can get these super, super tight uh, feedback loops, it really helps, uh, helps when programming. One of the other things that I've heard is that, well, this was mostly in web performance. I spoke yeah. to Tammy Everts and I read her book. Yeah. Time is money. So what I saw there was that the number is 20%. If if you don't improve the performance by 20%, people don't really notice it. Do, did you have baselines for those things? Yeah, absolutely. Or? Because when we built the first version of Alive, all it did was compile all the projects. And then we, we gave it to people and they said, no, it's too slow. And then we'd say, okay, well... Even with the improvements? Yeah, and, well, no. Th then we improved it and, and we compared it to that baseline. And we said, okay, now we've got it down to, you know, a, a few seconds or something like that. And then a bigger project came along. And, you know, we sort of have this iterative approach where it seems good enough. It's like, you know, less than a second on this project. Project, but then someone comes along with a bigger one and and you're constantly comparing uh, to how you were performing before so we did have to take baselines for sort of what is you know what's the how long does it take Visual Studio to compile this project and how much better can we do yeah. and and uh, we, we found that we can do uh, pretty pretty like much better than 20% like uh, probably like hundreds of times better in in some cases for by using these edit and, edit and continue APIs and i just want to talk about some examples real real examples i don't sure. know if you're allowed to mention cuz we talked about figures drawing figures seeing That's uh, right. maybe simple for loops yes but what kind of like production code can can alive help yeah so alive can help on like any code that we can create the state for. So we're sort of doing some investigations like beyond unit tests. So any code that you have that, that's hit by unit test, odds are we can run it. Um, we can only run the code as fast as your code takes. So if you have like very slow code, you're going to get results very slowly. Uh, there's, there's sort of no way to get around that. But um, if you've got like real unit tests that, that operate quickly, then we can run most anything. Um, and sort of like the kinds of applications where we've seen a live succeed are um, web projects seem to do pretty well where like you've got um, a unit test that simulates an HTTP request coming in and then you can see, okay, what, what does this request look like? 
what's maybe my my controller doing um how's it talk to the model and you can sort of jump through method by method using a live on each method to see what the variables are looking like and what's going on and you can change things once you get to a state where you want to change something and see exactly how that impacts uh sort of how data flows through your code and that's different than debugging in the sense that you're selecting specifically a point versus when when you're debugging, you set the breakpoint. That's right, yeah. Then you hit run, and then you go through all yeah. these workflows. Yeah. This is different because you can get just a snippet. Yeah, yeah. Like once once we've got a test that that's going on, uh, we're we're rerunning your source code over and over and over again. Whereas the the edit and continue APIs are putting a breakpoint as sort of maintaining state of the world as it exists at that point. We tear down state. We say, okay, now you've made your change. We're going to run your unit test again, and we'll show you exactly what's changed. Maybe that means your unit test is now passing or something like that. But the point is, you're not constantly sort of placing breakpoints and going around from different place to place. You're just sort of seeing the the source code and the data that flows through that source code uh, side by side. And you can also plug in your own data, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, you can. Um, for example, we've, we've talked a lot about uh, test methods, but you can run a method that doesn't take parameters directly, or if one does take parameters, uh, a little box shows up and you can you can plug those in there. So let's talk a little more, just to wrap up, the the problems with live programming and the future. One of the things that I saw you mention at a conference in Norway, I think, was that you can solve some of the problems the way it's solved with unit tests. But what did did you mean by this? Was it mocks, using mocks, or...? Yeah, like, the, the, the... overwhelming problem that we sort of keep coming back to is the issue of state. Um, And when you go out and you take a live to people and you say, look at this great tool, it will run all your tests and you can see exactly what's going on in your methods. Or sometimes you can even run directly. Um, What they'll usually say is, I don't have any tests or something like that, right? So so when they have no tests, it's very, very difficult to, to um, to have state and to fake state and you want to do it accurately. Uh, one of the things I think I talked about at Norway is like you could put a breakpoint or something like that in your source code. Well, you've got sort of the state of the world at that point. Maybe you could clone all those objects or something like that and then and then feed those through alive on subsequent runs or something like that. So we have some thoughts about how to capture state because people are constantly, especially when they're using breakpoints, they're creating state there. They're clicking on a button on their website that fires an action to their controller and now the state is set up. Well, maybe we could think about some ways to clone that state. Uh, We haven't done any work there to see whether or not this is possible, how well this generalizes, but that's one one of the thoughts we we were thinking of. it's a, it's a tough problem, uh, and I, I honestly don't think it gets like enough attention in the, the live programming world. I think a lot of the demos are little, you know, 10-liners or 20-liners where all the state is defined within the method. And yeah, of course, it's easy to show you what's going on there. Yeah. But when you take this to real-world code um, and existing code, the state is the number one problem. And, and it's interesting that live programming research doesn't really deal with it that much. And I saw one of the images that you showed about a code. So I don't know if it was a client code, but it was this giant method with like 20 yes, ba- 20 yeah, parameters yes, or something yes, crazy. Yes. Yeah, yeah, the the realities of the code that you hope you have to run against and the reality of the code that 
customers are going to run your code against, it often differs by quite a bit. Like you said, you can have these crazy methods. For uh, like one one that might interest you is the other day I think I saw for Rosin the the compiler was crashing because someone had had um, chained together like over a thousand. Uh, methods together in sort of like this continuous chain of method calls. And yeah, I, I think it was auto-generated, but the point was like, there's weird code like that out there, and you have to sort of anticipate these sorts of things and understand how they're going to break your tool and stuff. Or even if for now we just use live programming for some portions yes. of it, it'll definitely alleviate the development process. And that's how we use it. So we, we use it um, internally when we built Alive, for example. Um, there was portions of, of source code where it worked very well. Um, Alive isn't very well structured for, since we just show the data, we don't show like the output. We're not very well structured for showing um, like graphical stuff. We're, we're good for showing um, numerical data, string data, that sort of thing. Uh, so there's portions of our code base that work very well and portions that don't currently. Last question, what are some of the things that we need to look at to reach the vision of learnable programming in addition to state, or is it mostly state? Um, it's, it's, it's mostly state, but if, if, you're, if you push me for other things that we would have to look at, it's like figuring out good ways to visualize these things. Because like I said, oftentimes the data that we work with and the data that flows through our program it doesn't map to like a circle or a square or a web app screen or a mobile app screen. It, it maps to something more abstract. And figuring out good ways to to show these things and allow people maybe even to directly manipulate these these sort of concepts, uh, that seems like something that, that interests me. And I would like to see sort of uh, some more research done there on maybe visualizing things and maybe automatically knowing how to visualize things based on sort of the data that flows through each variable, that sort of stuff. Is this more of a user experience or design yes. type of? Yeah, yeah, definitely. More, more user experience. Um, you, you can get most of the way there by just looking at the data, but sometimes the, the real insights that you want to make aren't always apparent by just looking at a series of numbers. Sometimes you have to see how those numbers change across time and see how they influence one another. And, and just looking at the raw data itself often isn't enough. I think that's why there's like, you know, such a big industry around like charts and, and visualizing data and sort of making things easy to understand. Did you have a background in user experience or? Uh, no, not me personally. Um, For building a life. Yeah, we just, we we try and look at other people who who have built very like cool things that we admire and we really like the user experience and we do our best to sort of like imitate that as closely as we can so we try and understand like why did i like this thing why why did i hate this thing um and we try and and figure figure that out and a lot of that comes from like i said sort of dog fooding your own tool um if you're using it yourself you will very quickly learn what is annoying about your tool and what to fix and what's great about it and where you love using it or like it. you said the slider for the for loop yeah exactly things like that grabbing UI components. Yes, yeah. Well, Josh, thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks for having me. Wow!